Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Should be a fun episode. Things are pretty awesome. One, got my brand new machine head shirt, the blackening. I love it. Got a very cool goat head from machine head as well. Before I forget, be sure to stick around for the end. We will play a short story from Untold Mayhem. That short story will be, let's go marked and possibly gone for good. Those are really old stories that I rewrote. Hopefully you guys will dig them. I had the nice surprise this morning on Twitter to see Untold Mayhem in a pick at Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much for stocking this, guys. That's awesome. I have been terrible at trying to get my books into stores. I know I should have reached out to different Barnes and Nobles. I have not. Got a lot of shit going on. One thing I did do this week was put trying to die at Grandma's house. I put this on all platforms. So it is no longer exclusive to Amazon. I am doing the same with trying to die at Brightside and trying to die in the pandemic. It's a matter of me reformatting them. It shouldn't take very long, but I want to make sure all the links are correct. Got to redo everything, make sure it's perfect before putting it wide. But hopefully I'll have those done over the weekend. So if you're really against buying books on Amazon, you will be able to buy those on wherever. Apple, Barnes & Noble, all those good sites. Today is my son's birthday. He just turned 10. He was very excited for it. That's all he's been talking about is his birthday. And we are going to do some pretty cool activities. One of those activities is inviting a bunch of his friends to do a private jiu-jitsu lesson at 10 Planet Whittier. So that's pretty cool. He's looking forward to that. So are his friends. Yeah, I'll, I'll help out with that and have fun. I think parents are going to jump in too. We'll see how many get on the mat and choke some motherfuckers out. If I was any good, I could, but I suck. I'm old. I'm broken. It's okay. I'm learning to accept that. That's all. That's part of it, I guess. But yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit. That goes back to what I did today. But first, for Jake's birthday, I decided to write him a little note. I've been waking up really early in the morning. Yesterday and the day before is 4 o'clock. This morning, I slept in until about 5. And I was like, okay, I know I have limited amount of time to get shit done today because I was going to go to do jiu-jitsu and yoga. But I thought it would be important to write him a little something. The note took longer than... I had intended it was about a page long, printed up for him, gave it to him. I got teary-eyed writing it. I was like, oh man, hopefully, hopefully this hits. Hopefully he will get something super positive from it. I know it's one thing to hear people tell us about our traits or, or why they love us, but it's another thing to see it written down. Someone's taking the time to put it on paper so he can look at it whenever. So <clears throat> I gave it to him. He's sitting in another room. I'm making a special birthday breakfast. He's like, Dad, you messed up. You left out a word. I was like, yeah, probably, dude. I did this morning. I was pretty tired. And then, then he said something else about the grammar. And I think he was just busting my balls. But I told him, I was like, yeah, I was just testing you. Just seeing if you're going to catch my errors. But it's also a good thing. Stuff doesn't have to be perfect, especially when it comes to writing. If I let my fear of doing things incorrectly with writing, even with sending stuff back and forth to co-authors. And the best thing that ever happened to me was finding Tom Spanbauer, who does dangerous writing. One of his main rules was fuck the rules, right? So yeah, the rules are there for a reason, but break them. Do whatever you want with them. Talk, write how you would normally talk. Like if I'm going to have a conversation with my friends, 
that's how I would write it out. So and I was also trying to get him, I want to make sure he has the belief in himself that I never had. That was one of the things that I pointed out to him was, man, when I was his age, yeah, I had goals and dreams, but I never had any belief that I could hit them, that I could reach them, that I would ever be good at anything. I was like, I just thought I had a me mediocre life ahead of me. Wasn't going to be any better than whatever my parents were doing. And I'd be lucky to even have that. So, and I, it took me a long time to break that, but I wanted to make sure that he knows like he is super capable of anything he wants to do. That was a cool way to start off the morning. We jumped into the pool real quick, cuddled up a little bit before he went to school, went to school with a big smile. He was happy, even though first thing in the morning, he was trying to get out of school a little bit, but no, he went and it, it's been good. After that, I went to 10th Planet Whittier on Tuesdays and Thursdays now instead of a regular class at 10 o'clock until they get a new instructor. We are going to have open mat, which is awesome, right? It's just the ability to roll with other people. People from different schools can come. Just a cool opportunity. And before that, my daughter gets dropped off right down the street instead of going home and then driving back to open mat like an hour later, 45 minutes later. I was like, I'll just go there and I'll do yoga. I'm not sure whether or not we are going to put it out as a class or not, but I'm going to be there every Tuesday and Thursday and then do open mat right afterwards. Today I did the yoga. It definitely tested my knee. I'm trying to be smart about it, though. I wasn't doing anything that was going to hurt it. But then I went and I rolled just with two of my friends. Well, actually, one of the kids I didn't know, but he was a lot lighter than me, probably like half my weight. So that was nice and safe, and he was a good partner. Then I went with another one of my buddies who I normally train with. There were other people there. And I was just realizing, like, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this with my knee. I had acupuncture the other day. And after the acupuncture itself was pretty painful in the knee. And then afterwards, the second half of it is body work. And she was only working on the, the leg and that MCL. Man, I had a hard time not screaming, just putting up with the, the pain of it. So I've definitely done a little number on my knee. I had to be smarter, even though when, and that's what I did today. I told coach after the two rows, I was like, know it. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get some work done. He's like, sounds like a smart choice. So yay for me, making smart choices. Maybe I am maturing. <clears throat> Before I forget, just saw it, Unlocking the Cage. This book is free. Well, not this book. This is a hardcover. You got to pay some serious money for this thing. Or be one of the 340 fighters I interviewed who probably got a free copy. But Unlocking the Cage. If you like MMA, if you want to know why I fought, that's why I started the project was to figure out why I fought when I was terrible at it, when I was getting the shit kicked out of me. And then next week, you could read for 99 cents, TBI or CT, what the hell was wrong with me, which goes into why I probably shouldn't have been sparring when I was writing this book and in my 40s. Speaking of TBI or CTE, I just got back my results from the halfway brain map at that point they remap your brain and it was cool being able to see the reduction in like my arousal anxiety type brain waves and just the overall improvement and i know how much i've improved i know like emotionally it's been pretty crazy i just have so much more control so much i'm able to kind of step back and just be like okay yeah that kind of upset me but i'm just gonna breathe and chill and deal with it i'll process it Whereas before I was way more reactive. So that's feeling awesome. The brain map just confirmed what I was feeling. But then it's also a little depressing to still see the damage, right? Like the parts that are going to take a super long time to fix if I were to ever fix. That who knows if they're going to get worse. Hopefully they will not get worse. 
If they do, I can do something like this intervention again, which is costly and takes time. But my brain health is incredibly important to me because I know if I don't keep my shit together, I will be a terrible father, terrible husband. I'll make some really bad decisions. So I need to be aware of it. And, you know, I have so many friends that could probably use a brain map. They're probably experiencing lots of the same shit I am probably burying it all. They're probably just saying, oh, well, this is how men are. This is how people are our age, you know, just angry or can't control my emotions, whatever it might be. I played football with a lot of guys. I fought with a lot of guys. I know I'm not the only one that has had this kind of damage. So, but, and again, I didn't think I had this damage. I said I was fine. Even when I was experiencing all the symptoms, I was fine. I was fine. I was fine. I didn't want to do the testing. So it wasn't until I did the testing, but I was like, oh shit, I am not fine. I'm nowhere close to fine. And now I can't even imagine going back to where I was. So that's all awesome. Another thing that's awesome. I'm very excited to be starting the Germany campaign. That thing is underway. I hired someone to help with Amazon ads, Facebook ads, really going at, after English speaking readers there. And so we will build up the Try Not to Die series. That is my main focus. Also going to be building up my newsletter there. Before I was all, I kept putting it off because I was thinking, well, I need to do a German newsletter too. And I don't want to have to translate the one I have. And even though that wouldn't be that hard, I was like, well, if I'm going after English readers, just have them sign up to my English newsletter. So we're going to start doing that. And the cost of advertising in Germany should be much lower than it is in America and other places in the world. So that is also awesome. Even better, the PR campaign is going to get underway next week. We have our first kickoff call on, I believe, Tuesday. I told him, I'm, I was like, I'm available as early as four o'clock. That's the one nice thing about waking up early. Germany is nine hours ahead of us. It can make Zoom calls a little bit difficult. So I'm very excited about that. The last thing I wanted to talk about was how good it feels to be re-motivated about a project. I know last week I talked about trying to die super high with Steve Montgomery, how I'm going to take a look at that, see where we're at. All right, that's not the book I'm talking about being excited about. I still haven't picked that up. I knew I had other shit to do. One of those things was to get back onto trying to die in a dark fairy tale that I'm co-authoring with Evan. It had been a long time since I had been working on that, but what was really cool is I saw half of it's already been edited or just about edited. He made some changes, so I'm going to go back through all my notes, re-add my notes in, take stuff out, all that kind of stuff. But that first half should be pretty solid. I'm doing the second half right now, and while I was doing it yesterday, I just got so happy, and I had a laugh about it, but I was happy about a super brutal death scene that came to me. and. I was like, oh, there's this giant wolf, and man, this thing's just going to tear him apart, and it's going to be brutal. He's going to be forcing him to go fetch something, but while he's tearing him apart, it's going to be, and I just was super happy about it. I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm excited about this book. It is going to be super, super violent. The main story, Evan definitely has added some really cool scenes. There is violence. There's some disgusting stuff. Overall, though, I'd say it's more of a lighthearted type book. It's fairy tale-ish. But these death scenes are going to get pretty, pretty nasty. So excited about that. And even better was realizing I have my son to help me. Yesterday, I always have to be a little bit careful because sometimes he's a little bit squeamish. He doesn't want to hear certain things. So I test him like, hey, man, I'm really excited about the dark fairy tale. Got some new death scenes. I just read some more. Do you want to hear any of it? Do you want to help me make a death scene? 
and he was very excited about it and i told him about the wolf thing he's like oh yeah that's how they do it you know they'll go up to a deer and they'll just start chopping out pieces while the deer is still standing and i was like that's awesome man i said let's bring all that in and he's like wait do you have a death scene for the b decision if they do this i was like not yet i was like why do you have some ideas and he gave me some cool ideas so that's a lot of fun being able to read it to him being able to get him involved in the creation process that's super cool so he enjoys it he likes being part of it it definitely makes me happy and so evan thank you so much for giving me a really cool story to run past my kids all right guys it's a birthday day and i gotta go pick up the birthday kid from school really soon then i have to edit this sometime maybe i'll do it in the morning before I go to 6 a.m. jiu-jitsu at 10th Planet Whittier. Again, I'm going pretty easy because of my knee, but the nice thing is I'm still learning so much. I've forgotten everything, but it's coming back like one piece at a time, one piece at a time. And I just have to realize there's no rush. I'm getting a good workout while I'm doing it, meeting cool people, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I shall continue doing it until I can no longer, or I decide I want to go do something else. Maybe I'll eventually say, you know what, yoga is way better. I just need to do yoga. That's all I need. I need to work on the breathing. Maybe I'll do a mix of the two. We shall see. I'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, that's what I'm doing. All right, guys, <clears throat> we are going to go out on Untold Mayhem. Let's go with Marked. And eh, possibly gone for good. Not sure. We'll see. All right, guys, hope you have an incredible one. Thank you so much for watching, listening, subscribing, liking, sharing, all that kind of stuff. All the support really does mean a lot to me. I appreciate it. Hope you have an incredible week, and I will talk to you later. Peace. Marked. Olson was too good to be true. The old man hadn't learned his lesson. He still flaunted his wealth, kept the exact same routines, and never watched his back. It was like the fat slob wanted to get robbed again. When Nick first got out of the joint, he'd promised himself he'd never do this sort of thing again. But Olson was the perfect victim, and the money was too good. 300000 would solve a lot of problems. It'd also make up a little for the time locked up. Hell, a payday like that would equal close to 50000 for each of his seven years in the pen. Nick turned the page of the newspaper and sneaked another glance at the jewelry store directly across from the mall's food court. From his seat outside of the McDonald's Express, he could keep a close eye on the old man while looking like any other fool reading the help-wanted ads. Not that he would ever lower himself to take one of those jobs. Just for the hell of it, he ran through the list. The only positions he qualified for were below him, and the other 90% of the jobs wouldn't be worth taking even if the manager had no hang-up about hiring an uneducated ex-con. Who wants to wear a monkey suit and take orders from some college dork just to make 30000 a year? To hell with that. It was nearing 7 o'clock, and Suzanne, his inside, was pleasantly escorting the last couple out of the jewelry store. Before she headed back in, Suzanne made eye contact with Nick and gave him a discreet thumbs-up. He set down his paper to acknowledge her, and she flashed four fingers. This was going to be sweeter than he had imagined. Olson was taking home more work than usual. Nick grabbed his coffee and headed for the exit. Olson wouldn't be done closing up shop for another half hour, 
but Nick was too excited to stay still. Four hundred thousand. A hundred thousand for each of the months he'd been out on parole, unable to find a decent job. Olson's car wasn't in its spot. The black BMW had been there when Nick arrived two hours before, and it should still be there. Olson hadn't left his sight for more than five minutes. No way he could have come out and moved it. Nick was tempted to race back inside to find Suzanne, but that would be foolish. It wouldn't look good for a tattooed thug to be seen with her. Someone might get the wrong idea and put things together, especially if he went ahead with the robbery. He couldn't bring her into it. Not because he liked her, but because he didn't trust her. Just like everyone else on the planet, if it was her ass or his, she would sell him out in a second. Just like the backstabbing bastard that had put him away in the first place. Not sure what to do, Nick did a 180 and headed for his beater Ford. He felt like a fool when he spotted Olsen's 745i in the next row, wedged between two SUVs. He had to get a grip if he was going to pull this thing off. How could he not know where the car was parked? He was acting like a damn fish straight out of the tank. Easing into his lowered front seat, Nick concentrated on the BMW's driver door, rationalizing away his fear. He had nothing to worry about. Olsen was an easy target. He'd been an easy target for Bear and hadn't changed his ways since. Bear. Now that was an untrustworthy son of a bitch. After sharing a six-by-eight concrete cell for two years, you'd think you'd get to know someone. They'd sworn allegiance to each other, become blood brothers, beaten down punks together. All that, and Bear still ditched him when it counted. Three months ago, Bear had called Nick to tell him about this mark. They were supposed to do it together and split the profit, but Bear must have got greedy because after a week of staking out and planning with Nick, he went ahead and did it on his own. The only decent thing Bear did was give Suzanne Nick's name and number so she could call him a week later and tell him that Bear had taken her boss for close to 200000 The good news was that the plan had worked and the old man continued his reckless ways. The bad news was Bear split town without saying a word, which seemed pretty risky considering he was on paper for the next three years. Probably went to Mexico where he wouldn't have to worry about some parole officer making house calls. Nick knew all about that headache. As far as pigs went, his P.O. was pretty cool, but the guy was still a pain in the ass. He'd held Nick's parole papers over his head, constantly reminding him that the smallest screw-up would send him back in to finish his last two years. And the home invasion he had planned would earn him more than a slap on the wrist, most likely an additional five to ten on top of the two. The one thing Nick knew was he would never go back. He considered calling the whole thing off. Maybe it wasn't worth the risk. Nick had missed the first seven years of his only son's childhood, precious years he would never get back. In the past four months, he'd seen glimpses of the father he could be if he only stayed out of prison. How could he risk missing another seven? Nicky deserved better than that. Then again, getting a crappy minimum wage job wasn't much of an option either. What kind of role model would he be if he could barely afford to take his son out for a happy meal? He needed money, and he needed it now. He would just have to be extra careful. The dashboard clock read 7.40. Olson was already ten minutes late. Instead of getting worked up about the delay, Nick counted his blessings. 
The sun had set, and it would be difficult for the old man to spot him. Nick didn't have to wait much longer. Without checking his surroundings, Olsen unlocked his beamer and slid his leather overcoat across the back seat. After stroking his bushy gray goatee, he plopped into the driver's seat, tossing his briefcase onto the passenger side. Just the sight of the treasured briefcase made Nick's imagination run wild. There was no question whether or not he would do this. The man was an easy target with a huge payoff. What more could he ask for? Not worried if he lost Olsen for a moment or two, Nick gave him a few seconds head start. He knew the route Olsen would take and that he wouldn't deviate from it. All that mattered was that Nick arrived at the house just before the fat man pulled in. Nick was stopped three cars behind Olsen's when they reached the traffic signal marking the halfway point. After slipping on his black leather gloves, Nick checked the glove box and pulled out his gun. The thirty-eight wasn't in the best condition, and possession of it would land him back in the pen, but the reassuring feel of the hard metal gave him the confidence he needed right now. For this kind of job, he really should have a partner, but he couldn't risk trusting anyone. He'd made that mistake with Bear, and he wasn't going to make it again. And if that idiot had been able to do this on his own, then there was no reason Nick couldn't pull it off. As expected, Olsen drove two blocks down and pulled into the McDonald's drive-thru. Nick knew the slob would order three Big Macs, two large fries, a large strawberry shake, an apple pie, and a caramel sundae. And judging by the cars ahead of Olsen, it would take six to eight minutes for him to get his food and re-enter traffic. Plenty of time for Nick to get to the house. Olsen's sparsely populated neighborhood was beautiful, the type of place Nick could never afford. He hoped he wouldn't have to use the gun. He didn't want to hurt, let alone kill, anyone. It wasn't his style. But prison had taught him an important lesson in life. Sometimes you have to be violent to survive. If it came down to him or Olsen, he wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. The original plan had called for Bear to hide in the garage and have Nick tail the beamer. Once it pulled into the garage, Nick would block Olsen in. Now that he was flying solo, he would have to improvise. If he tried driving in behind the beamer, Olsen would be sure to spot him and could easily close the garage door before Nick could slip inside. If Nick hid in the garage, he'd have to worry about Olsen driving away if he smelled something fishy. And that was if he could even get inside the garage. Suzanne said the code still worked, but who knew how accurate that info was? Nick pulled onto Olsen's street, passed the house, made a U-turn, and parked directly across from the driveway that divided the eight-foot-high walls surrounding the property. With about five minutes left to get into position, Nick tucked the pistol into the waistband of his jeans and eased out of the car. Acting as if he had business being there, he sauntered across the street and entered Olsen's lushly landscaped property. The house was to his right, and directly before him was the attached three-car garage. He slid open the small remote on the wall and punched in Suzanne's code, praying it would work. The door rumbled open, and before it had risen halfway, Nick had already slipped inside, knocked loose the automatic light, and hit the switch that lowered the door. Nick crouched in the corner and waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness. When he heard a car pull into the driveway, Nick backed against the side wall and ducked behind some barrels. He remembered to slip on his black ski mask just as the garage door began to rise. The piercing headlights illuminated the garage, 
allowing Nick to see he was hiding behind two plastic trash cans. Nick peered through the crack between the cans and saw the tail end of the BMW pulling in. He also noticed the electric gate sliding shut. In all the days he had staked out the house, with Bear and without him, he had never once seen the gate close. He hadn't even realized there was a gate, but thinking back, he did remember walking across its track. Why Olson decided to close it now was beyond him, but Nick guessed it was a good thing. Sure, he'd have to jump over it when he left, but this made the house much more secure and isolated from the outside. Now, he needn't worry about some good Samaritan spotting him and calling the cops. The car's engine and headlights turned off. Nick pulled out the thirty-eight and gathered his nerves as the garage door closed. Now was the most important moment. No more hiding, no more waiting. Olsen seemed to be taking a long time getting out of the car, and Nick wondered if he might be on his cell phone. If Olsen got out of the car and was still on the phone, Nick was screwed. Five seconds ticked away before the car door creaked open. Nick strained his ears but couldn't hear anything. Although Olsen wasn't talking, he could be listening to someone on the phone. The fat man's dress shoes clicked onto the cold concrete and the door slammed shut. Still no talking. Nick had to act. If the old man was on the phone, he'd signal for him to turn it off. And if the guy tried something squirrely, Nick would deal with him, snag that briefcase, and run like hell. Before Olsen took another step, Nick popped up. He had worried for nothing. The briefcase was in his hand, but no phone. Nick aimed the gun at Olsen's head. Hold it right there. The guy didn't even flinch. He slowly turned to face Nick, the beamer between them. Olsen was smiling. Hold it right there, Nick repeated. I heard you the first time. If the car hadn't been in the way, Nick would have slapped the smug bastard. Put the briefcase on the hood and slide it over. But the paint... Surely you wouldn't want me to scratch it. Are you serious? Put the goddamn briefcase on the car. Calm down, son. You don't want to use that. I will. No, you won't. Yes, I will. A soft voice sounded from the opposite corner, startling Nick. Not if you want to live. Without taking the gun off Olsen, Nick glanced to his right. Dressed in black barely recognizable in the dark, Suzanne crouched behind Olsen's other car, a pistol pointed at Nick's head. Nick was so frustrated and upset he could barely speak. What the hell are you doing? What does it look like? Put the gun down. Now why would she want to do that? Olsen asked. Nick turned his attention back to Olsen. His smile was maddening. I'll shoot you. No, you won't, Nicholas. You'll drop your gun and acknowledge that you made a very bad mistake coming here. Nick turned his gun on Suzanne. Olsen whipped out a huge revolver and trained it on Nick. Nick moved the gun from Olsen to Suzanne and back again. What is this crap? You were helping me. What happened? Did he find out? Make you do this? Are you really that stupid? She stood and walked around the trunk of the jag. Not even Bear was that stupid. Now put down your gun. Do as she says. Shooting you will give me a little pleasure. Not to mention it will make quite a mess, which I really have no interest in cleaning. 
Nick couldn't speak, but he continued moving the gun from one target to the other. Really, Nick? Suzanne said, walking over to Olsen with her gun lowered. Put it down. You really think I'd give you a working gun? When Bear had given it to Nick, he'd hidden it away, automatically assuming it functioned. He never once thought about trying it, and it wasn't as if he could take it to the firing range. Nick continued to aim at Olsen. I'll put mine down when he puts his down. Now that's not very smart, Nicholas. Quit calling me that, you fat bastard. That's not very nice. Set the gun down, and while you're at it, why don't you take off your mask and get comfortable? Suzanne switched on the garage's light and slid her slight frame against Olsen, a man twice her age and three times her weight. Okay, this is getting very tedious, Olsen said, switching guns with Suzanne. If you insist on forcing me to shoot you, I'd better use this one. Nick aimed at the side of Olsen's round head and pulled the trigger. He pulled it again, and again. Nothing. Now will you put it down? Olsen raised the silenced pistol. I really didn't invite you here just to shoot you. Nick dropped the worthless gun and pulled off his mask, recognizing defeat. Let me go. I didn't do anything. This is entrapment. Suzanne smiled as she ran her hand over Olsen's belly. We're not cops, so entrapment doesn't mean all that much to us. If you'd like to call the police and tell them about it, I'd be more than happy to let you use my phone. Suzanne held out her cell. I'm sure they'd agree with you and lock us up. They wouldn't question why you were on another man's property without his permission. They also wouldn't wonder what an ex-felon is doing with a firearm. Nick shook his head at the phone and asked them what they wanted. We merely desire your presence, Olsen said, and we didn't think you'd accept our request. But why? What do you want? To show you something. Come with us. Go ahead, Nicholas. Follow Suzanne. With no option but to do as he was told, Nick trailed Suzanne through the laundry room and into the kitchen. He considered trying to grab her and use her as a shield, but he could feel Olsen's gun pressing against his back. You still haven't told me why. Nick watched Suzanne's hips switching back and forth as she led them down a long hallway. I didn't do anything to you. I don't even know you. Nicholas, my boy, you are really in no position to demand an explanation, Olsen said. But I am feeling generous. The truth is that I'm a big reality TV buff. Problem is the quality of the shows they give us. Olsen urged Nick into the room Suzanne had entered. Go ahead. From the looks of it, Olsen had his own little movie studio. Nick counted over twenty screens and a wall full of recording equipment in the room. The mindless programs they call entertainment are insulting to my intelligence. Shows about love, infatuation, infidelity, sex. Shows about cliques, pacts, alliances, betrayals. Garbage. All garbage. Suzanne had a switch that blanked out all the screens. So what's your brilliant idea? Nick asked. What do you have that Hollywood hasn't thought of? A glimpse into man's true spirit. What do I have to do? Spend the next three months in my guest room. Olsen pointed at the metal door Suzanne stood next to. What's the catch? 
There is none. And if I refuse? What do you think the gun's for, Nicholas? Nick searched their faces for some clue. He knew there was more to the story, but he didn't really have an option. Three months? And then you just let me go? No cops? You have my word. Now, if you would be so kind as to give Suzanne your car keys, we'll park your car in the garage so you don't get towed. How thoughtful. Nick threw his keys at Suzanne. Now, now, Nicholas, be a sport. Nick wouldn't look at him. That's fine. I've had enough of your uncivil company. Olson motioned toward the door. Go ahead, Suze. The door swung open, revealing a long corridor with another metal door at the end of it. Nick walked the hallway, the door slamming shut behind him. When he came to the far end of the hallway, he said, And how exactly am I supposed to get in? A loud click answered his question. Nick pushed the unlocked door open and stepped into the dark chamber. The second he was clear of the door, it slammed shut behind him, the lock snapping back into place. Assuming the cameras were equipped with audio, Nick said. So you're going to see if I'm scared of the dark. Afraid not, big guy. You'll have to do better than that. The lights turned on, momentarily blinding him. Nick squinted and saw he was inside a rather large but otherwise ordinary guest room. There was no dungeon master with whips and chains, no rabid dog, no bed of roaches. Just a large, windowless room with a cot against one wall, a couch across from it, and a toilet and sink in the far corner. If Olsen got his jollies watching grown men taking a crap on camera, then maybe this wasn't going to be as bad as Nick thought. A low moan came from the couch. There was someone sitting there looking at him. The unclothed man rose to his feet, his emaciated body tottering on spindly legs. Over a loudspeaker, Olsen said, You're not being very polite, Nicholas. You could at least say hello. Didn't know I was getting a roommate. I thought you'd be happy. You haven't seen each other in quite some time. The poor bastard with his protruding ribs and bloated stomach couldn't weigh more than a hundred pounds. Surely no one Nick knew. True, he looks a little worse for wear, but that's no reason to ignore him. The bearded man inched closer. He held something shiny in his hand. His bony right hand with the shamrock and swastika tattooed across it. The exact same tattoo Nick had spent hours working on between count times. I know Bear is happy to see you. He hasn't had a thing to eat in over, what is it, seven days? And that doesn't include the eighty days prior in which he was given a mere thousand calories. Eighty-seven days. A couple shy of Olsen's deadline. Stop right there, Nick ordered his old cellmate. Bear didn't stop. Only five feet separated them. He pointed the knife at Nick's chest. What's it going to be, fellows? Who's going to make it to see tomorrow? Bear, you win and you'll finally get to eat, and in a few days have your freedom. Nicholas, if you're the victor, you'll have three months to wonder who your final meal will be. Have at it, boys. Tape is rolling. Gone for good. 
This was the exact reason Joanne left Los Angeles and moved halfway across the country to a small town. This type of savage atrocity was only supposed to be committed by the filthy creatures that inhabited large cities. Gruesome murders weren't supposed to happen out here in the middle of nowhere. After one last look at the body, Joanne exited the bedroom and made her way toward Officer Donovan, who was pacing back and forth at the end of the hallway. Joanne asked, Were you the first to respond? Donovan said, Yeah, Ken Moore was on the other side of town helping Miss O'Connor with her chickens. I was picking up lunch at the diner when I heard the call. Sure, I'm glad I hadn't eaten yet. It's not a pretty sight in there, she said, letting him know that if a seasoned veteran like herself was upset by it, then he had nothing to be embarrassed about. God, she was just a helpless old woman, and the number of times she was stabbed, it's sick. Joanne shook her head. Someone the victim's age should be baking cookies for her grandkids or knitting a sweater. She had no business being spread across the bed, having spent her last few minutes on Earth as a human pincushion. What can you tell me? Do we know anything yet? Diana Snyder, 67 years old. No sign of forced entry. Guessing she left the door unlocked. Her husband George found her and called 911. He nodded toward the kitchen doorway behind him. He's in there. When I came in, he was cuddled up beside her. How's he holding up? He stopped crying. I think he's in shock. Okay, I can take it from here. Care if I wait outside? I don't know if I can handle listening to him anymore. It's too damn sad. That's fine. Start interviewing the neighbors. They were probably too far away to see anything, but you never know. Donovan hurried out the front door. Joanne walked toward the kitchen, took a deep breath, and braced herself. This had to be the absolute worst part of the job. She would rather examine a dozen mutilated bodies than interview one survivor, especially so soon after the incident. The distraught man sat at the small kitchen table, his once-white T-shirt splattered with blood. Joanne slowly crossed the linoleum floor, giving herself time to steady her nerves and study him. The bony old man was a wreck, his wiry white hair scattered every which way, streaked a dark brownish red from having run his bloody hands through it. His bloodshot eyes were such a pale blue that it looked like the years had peeled away their brilliance. He had an average-looking nose, straight and without bumps, but a strand of clear mucus hung between the tufts of white hair that pushed from each nostril. Standing with her hand on the back of an empty chair, Joanne said, Excuse me, Mr. Snyder? The man looked at Joanne. She's gone, he said, his voice cracked and desolate. Gone for good. Gently, she asked, Do you mind if I sit down, sir? He clenched his hands. Oh, God, I can't believe it. Joanne took a seat and offered him the package of tissues she kept in her jacket. His large, round eyes overflowed with anguish. It's George. Joanne set the tissues on the table, 
hoping he would use them to wipe his nose. George continued talking, oblivious to the gesture and the dangling string of snot about to drop onto his upper lip. We were high school sweethearts, you know, he said, eyes fixed on his hands. Joanne nodded. In her 16 years in the LAPD, she had discovered that, if time permitted, it was best to let the survivors talk about other things before addressing the tragic event. It seemed to serve them as a type of security blanket that would lessen the impact of reliving the terrible trauma. George said, Ever since she took the seat in front of me in freshman English, I'd stare at her auburn mane and imagine caressing it. She was beautiful. Joanne had never been loved by any one man for more than five years. But here was George, idolizing a wife he'd had for 50. The first time she let me hold her hand, we were walking down Cherry Avenue, my arm burning from the weight of our school books. From that moment on, I never let go. Joanne was tempted to grab the tissues for herself. She couldn't let the tears flow. That would be unprofessional, even in this hick town. Joanne knew she should be asking questions in case the killer was fleeing the area. But she figured a few more minutes wouldn't hurt. Whoever had committed the atrocity had not been careful. They would have more than enough evidence to track down the animal. We got married 48 years ago and had three wonderful children. We made them on that same exact bed that she was. The old man looked at Joanne, really looked at her for the first time. Why did this have to happen? It wasn't supposed to. We were going to die together. Joanne cleared her throat. I don't know. I'm so sorry. She's only been gone an hour, but it feels like an eternity. I don't know how I'll ever make it without her. You will, she said. If only things had been different. I feel like it's my fault. Did you leave the door unlocked? No, everything was locked. But this could have been prevented. She didn't heed my warnings. Joanne imagined his unsuspecting wife opening the front door and inviting the killer inside to use the phone, or perhaps the bathroom. George said, And what a terrible way to go. Must have taken over five minutes and she was alive most of it. There were 77 slashes shredding Diana's body, but only a few delivered to the torso. Joanne eased her chair back and asked, Did you hear the attack? Is she still on the bed? George, where were you this morning? He used the back of his hand to wipe his nose, dragging the slimy mucus across his cheek. I was here all day. In the backyard? He shook his head. I warned her to change. It didn't have to end this way.